Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all sundays on electric now tune in to the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast with me yell teagle and my co-host felicia michelle each week we'll be breaking down another episode of leverage redemption plus we've got exclusive interviews with the stars as well as some games and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art so after you watch leverage redemption on imdb tv you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the easter eggs and behind the scenes fun the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast sundays on electric now If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, And we are excited uh, both for this topic and our guests. We are revisiting the attempts to make the cartoon The Jetsons into a, a feature film. Um, and for those who listen to our all our episodes, we did an episode a while ago with the writer Eric Luke about another attempt. That was a fun conversation, but uh, we also didn't have a script and he didn't have the script and that was a long time ago. So he really didn't remember anything about it. Again, still a good episode. You should go back to, and listen to it. Um, but today we have a script and we have the writers and they've also read the script. So I think this will be a little bit more of an in-depth conversation uh with that said this is 
Our guests are Mr. Terrence Winkless and Alec Lorimore. Um, if you don't know their names, I guarantee you, you know things they have worked on. Alec, if you, if you went to do any IMAX thing, if you were like me, a kid in the 90s mm-hmm. who loved going to the Science Museum and seeing, ours was called Omni Theater, not an officially yep. IMAX, but uh, Alec is a more twice Oscar-nominated producer of things like Everest. I feel like Everest was a real big one. I feel like everyone, even if they ended up seeing it on DVD, uh, you got nominated right for the Living Sea and Dolphins. Yeah, Living Sea is that great. Is correct. Uh, and Terrence mm-hmm. uh, is co-writer of The Howling. He also directed a movie I really love called The Nest. I know he also directed a movie mm-hmm. that Stephen really loves, which is the Don the Dragon Wilson classic Blood Fist. He's Absolutely. also directed a lot for TV, a little show some of you might have heard of called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, Terrence, Alec, thank you so much for joining us. Josh, you want a job as an agent? (laughs) (laughs) And also Rage and Honor, I like. Ah, good. You got excellent taste. You like those action picks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Introduced Um, me as Cynthia Rothrock. So, all right. uh, By by the way, before we start, let me give a shout out to a a friend of the show. uh, His name is Tu Nguyen. Oh, God. Oh, but I just messed up his name. Tu Nguyen. He he actually supplied the script to us and introduced me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, to uh, Terrence. So yes, thank, thank you. you very much. He's always uh, offering us cool stuff in this. I, that would, I was happy we were finally able to get something going. Yeah. And he uh, really, from him. Yeah. It was very kind of him to set this up. Thank you. Uh, but maybe to get us started, we always like asking our guests their origin story. And uh, while we were, we had a little bit of technical difficulties getting things going, so we had been talking to Terrence for a while here, and we were starting to really dig into your uh, uh, film school era. But I think uh, whichever one of you wants to go first, I think there's there's a lot of fun background to cover even just before we even get up to your professional careers. Well, I can say I first met Terry when he was buying an apple, and by that I mean an actual apple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, across the street from the film school at a place called the 3-2 Market. And I guess we had both recognized each other from being in that class for the two or three times it may have met before then. But we just got to talking and that's, that's where it all began. I needed, I was doing uh, uh, a film that was not great. At USC in that first class, you had to do six films. I don't know why I wanted to show the life of an apple, but that's why I was being, buying it. And I needed <laughs> to show it against somebody's stomach and Lorimore was nominated. <laughs> Classic film school. Yeah, one it's of all the- been downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> one of the small world moments that came out in our our. our pre-discussion we had is that uh during lockdown um i don't remember who was screening you know a lot lot of uh, rep theaters who you know couldn't show movies during lockdown started streaming things online which was actually kind of fun because then that meant that you know we my wife and i could who works for the ucla film and television archive we could watch shows that were being streamed from theaters in new york and chicago and wherever that we normally would have to physically be there but they showed uh, it shock value was that what it's called there was a collection of oh yeah usc shorts from yeah. that we were because ta- we started talking about dan o'bannon and i was saying how he watched a short film that he was the star of and terms like oh i made that <laughs> that was my film uh well, together alec and i made that you have to oh, okay yeah terry directed it i uh show 
shot, wrote, and edited it. So and are those it was a things, collaboration. Are those things that are that are actually readily available for anyone to watch? Do you know? Are those just like upstreamable somewhere? I don't think that Foster's release by any name. It's also known as Judson's release. I might as well pause there for a second. We called it Judson's release because O'Bannon suggested that the tune Alec was playing on the guitar sounded like it should have been by Blind Willie Judson. Uh, <laughs> Judson, sorry. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. And we said, that's a great name, Judson's release, because a bridge uh, on the guitar is also known as a release. And it, was, it, it hit. So we named the film Judson's Release. But then when we found somebody who was willing to put it out into the world, he'd already made his catalog. And the only area that was available was in the Eps. So we had another friend of ours named Jim Foster. So we sort of named it after him, sort of. But Jim Foster's nothing like that character. So don't get distracted <laughs> by that. Anyway, that's why we changed the name. Judson's Release is a much better name. I don't know if it's anywhere online. I guess I should also give some kind of context. I'm not realizing we're continuing a conversation we were having before recording. We we're talking about your time at USC where you were uh, classmates with Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter. Nick Castle was also yeah. there at the same time. You guys were all part of this little group. Uh, those short films, I think uh, some, uh, I guess, film nerds of a certain age know that that's where Dark Star uh, grew out of. That Dark Star was a, uh, a short film. Uh, we all were making short films at the senior part of our time there. And John uh, <laughs> decided to take the negative, take the, all the makings of it and turn it into a feature, <laughs> which was not exactly cricket because you're not supposed to steal the negative out of the lab at USC. But he, he did it and then he managed to sell it to James Harris. I know he has a great quote. I don't remember where I read it, but I always loved that when they ha shot more footage so they could turn it into a feature film that he had sort of mixed feelings because he was like, I felt that we made the world's <laughs> greatest student film. But when you show it in a theater and add more, now it's just kind of a lousy movie. I disagree. I love that movie, but oh, yeah, uh, I kind of got where he was coming from. <laughs> you remember the uh, the beach ball? The, the oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was the hands of the beach ball monster. Oh, really? Oh, no yeah. way. <laughs> we, took, uh, we took the claws from, um, oh, God, what was the name of the horror movie? A Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's what it was. We put the beach ball on it, and my hands are the ones that will be, will be pushing the whatever it was away. And, the so moment I... and then when the uh, God, what was that? Oh, when O'Bannon wanted to get rid of the the monster, he would walk toward these. There was a set of panels of uh, some kind of plastic, and if you brought the light toward the panels of plastic, got real big, and if you took it away, so it looked like something was alive back there. It was great fun <laughs> and uh, world's cheapest special effect. Just walk <laughs> near them, move the light, move it close. Uh, it and then, yeah, oh, go ahead. Steve, were you going to say something? Oh no, 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 I was just going to say the moment I think of Dark Star, that's the first image that pops to my head is the beach ball the beach monster. Ball, yeah, it's so funny. Um, and so then how was it for you guys? Like, what was your progression then out of this film school scene into actually being working professionals? And did you like, when did you guys first start then teaming up to work together? Or was that kind of my, 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 post, my, my sorry, my post school is very, I didn't have any work at all. 
it was it was horrible. Uh, I eventually, through my dad, I found something, and then through Alec, I found a bit more because Alec found a uh, job right away, right? Kind of right. Well, away. what happened was I had always been focused on cinematography, and then when we did uh, Judson's release, I just you know jumped in and said, "Well, I'll edit it," because I really hadn't ever edited anything, and I wanted to, and that worked out pretty well. So when we finished that film, I started looking for work as an editor and found work as an editor and spent a number of years doing that. And uh, working, for a guy, I, working for a guy that had gone to USC, of course. The old connection. I, I always say, I don't think I've ever had a job that I can't link back by two links at the most to USC. Yeah. Um, it's really where everything connects. But anyway, uh, so I was editing, but somehow Terry and I had the audacity to think we could write a script together again. And so we knocked it out in the evenings when I wasn't editing. And on the basis of that uh, script, we got an agent. And on the basis of the agent, we sold our next script. And you know, suddenly you, we were... Are you including the truck script in there? Yeah, that's the first Let's script that got <laughs> like what? the first script got us the agent, and she said, uh, "Well, what are you working on?" And we told her, and it turned out I think we finished the script about two weeks after we met her, and a week later she'd sold it to Columbia, and we thought we were pretty hot fucking shit. <laughs> let me tell you, like what year are we talking here? Do you remember? Seventy-five or six. Yeah, somewhere. What what script was that? The one that she sold, or the one that we well, the one, one, the one, well, the one that we wrote initially was called the Silver Bulldog. It was about a uh, interstate trucker who gets in this series of adventures. Because Uh, of a truck strike. Yes, but that never saw the light of day. But we wrote a script called the Great Cape Girardeau Leap. (laughs) <laughs> which was set up with uh, Ray Stark and Steve Tisch as producers at uh, Columbia. And odd footnote, the first uh, project like that that Steve Tisch ever had his name on was the great Cape Girardeau leap. And he took a big leap after that. Um, so that, <laughs> thing was set, that thing was set up with, they were going to do it with Burt Reynolds and Sally Field, and one thing led to another, and they never did. Oh my god! They wound goodness. up instead making Smoking and the Bandit, and using our subplot as their subplot. We Uh-oh. took it. We <laughs> took it to our lawyer Tom Pollock at the time, great guy, uh, and said, uh, "Can we sue for this?" And he said, "Well, you can, but you'll never work in this town again." <laughs> oh, well, no. I think he went further. I think he said, "Yeah, you could legally." But there's no attorney in this town who wants to sue Ray Stark. So good yeah. luck. Yeah, right. Oh man, what was the subplot? Do you... It was just it was a uh, you know it's about a guy who uh, who's a grifter who's a con man pitching the idea that this kid can jump over the uh, the Mississippi River kind of like uh, 
What's Evil his name? Knievel. Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel. Uh. It was still, you know, doing it at the time. And then the girl that they, you know, was running away from the forced marriage and the three of them sort of barnstorm the Midwest. So the part that was the part, wow. the part that this was is, this still, is set in the 1930s, by the way. You know, right so on the proto Evil Knievel. And it was on the heels of the the Sting. So you know, the Sting was a huge hit and it won 12 Academy Awards and. So we were sort of cashing in on that that field, and yeah. anyway, it never got made. We never sued him, and uh, we kept working. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, it's well, nice to work. And some people I know, Ray Stark produced "Funny Girl," the album, the Pussycat, uh, "Funny Lady," "Murder by Death," the Goodbye Girl. Yeah, he his, his the cheap de- cheap detective, California Sweet. He, he produced the- a lot. Oh, you're looking, he, you're looking at his IMDb, aren't you? Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I need to see, you know, let the audience know. But yeah, he was huge. Yeah, hugely power, probably the most powerful producer in Hollywood at the time. Oh, that's too bad. So, Terrence, I'm clear, curious, what is, as we kind of connect the dots moving forward then, how did you get, like, where did the howling enter the picture for you. This is a semi-amusing story and one that I tell when people ask me stuff like this. <laughs> I, uh, Alec and I used to play softball on the weekends, on Sundays, out in Mar Vista, near the ocean. I drive down the 30 minutes from Hollywood to the ocean to play softball. And uh, for the mainly because it was co-ed, you could meet a lot of girls if you came to our game. <laughs> and it was all showbiz people. We called it the uh, writers and artists. No, that's something else. I can't remember. Um, so indeed, we I did it for years and years, like five years. And uh, there were a lot of actresses. There were a lot of actors. There were a lot of producers. And enough anyway that it was worth going and hoping for something to happen. And indeed, one day, uh, Jack Sullivan asked Kevin sellers for a ride home. Kevin's mom was a big deal at, I forget where. And Jack was an editor or something. Anyway, they'd gone to NYU together and Jack asked Kevin for a ride home. There was a script that Alec and I had written in the back seat. Jack asks Kevin, do you think it's okay if I read this script? Kevin goes, yeah, sure. That's why it's here. So people can read it. And that got me to a meeting with Danny Blatt, who was a guy, he was producing The Howling. And that's how I got there, was there was enough dark, strange in a script that Alec and I had written together called Vodun. What script was that? It was Vodun. Vodun. Of course it was. Right. Wait, Vodun was the title of the script? The sort of French. Vodun is the actual Creole word for voodoo. So it was about voodoo, it was dark and strange, and that's what they wanted for the, for the Howling. The Howling was a book, and the first thing we did was throw the book out. Which oh, I, I read happen. that book during lockdown. It is it's not nothing. great. A random, guy, a random guy gets bit by a random, I don't know what, and uh, you're off and running. But the guy and the wolves had nothing to do with each other. And uh, anyway, yeah, that's how, it, that's how I got that. <laughs> Funny. Them. Well done. Uh, softball. Came, what episode was that, Steve? Was that the Scott Schneid, the guy who made uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night? He also had a whole thing about being on a, like a Hollywood softball league in the early 80s. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But he yeah. was a, he, he was an agent at the time. He worked for an agency. <laughs> I don't know if the agency had their own league or if it was all kind of mixed together. They had, soft- lots of little institutions like that had uh, teams and you would play in the, there was a Hollywood league that his agency probably played in. We played hmm. in that a little bit, just a little. Uh, I was also going to ask you guys before we get to the Jetsons, um, there's another, uh, there's a Twitter account that Steve and I liked a lot that unfortunately, maybe for obvious reasons, finally got uh, some cease and desist orders from Paramount. The name of the account was Paramount Unproduced Properties. And this person got this, somehow got access to, from 1983 to 1997, they wound up with all the log lines that Paramount had for anything so it's this treasure trove of all the stuff that paramount bought and never made and just purely by coincidence i have as we were getting ready leading up to this episode i saw one of their old posts that now unfortunately has been the image has been taken down but the post is still there but it's for a script you guys had called washington pages 1985. Uh, what was that script? Oh, really? That's how we got the Jetsons. Oh, really? That's how we got well, the Jetsons. Perfect segue. Well, John Simpson <laughs> and Jerry Bruckheimer, who were, you know, shooting to the top at the time, uh, our agent got us a meeting with them because with a guy named Casey Silvers, who was their uh, development guy. And I think, Terry, didn't we know Casey from before somewhere? Yes, because he was involved in Vaudun. So that's how we knew Casey. Anyway, we got this meeting and uh, Don and Jerry wanted to do a movie on the subject of Washington Pages, which were in the news at the time. And so... Uh, yeah, some, sleazy, some sleazy congressman went after some you know, dish of a page. It was only 17 or 18. So this is a true story is what? uh, No, no, uh, it was not. It was really interesting, though, because uh, we went back to Congress and and got pretty much carte blanche to just go in all these places that people generally don't go. I will never forget the um, the guy who was the congressman for the district where paramount was and his name escapes me now but anyway i went to him and he you know he believed me that we were not doing a hatchet job which we didn't really want to do a hatchet job so at least i was telling the truth and he said well you know there's a guy named john dingle i don't know if you're familiar with john dingle Mm -hmm. but he was a congressman for from detroit for ever and his father before him had the seat and his wife after him now has the seat. So he was a powerful guy, but he had been a page as a kid because his father was a congressman and he was the self-appointed protector of the pages. So this congressman, it was, it was uh, Henry Waxman. Henry Waxman said, you got to go talk to John Dingle. And if you can persuade him that you're not doing a hatchet job, you'll be in. And so I went and I met with John Diggle and somehow he believed me and he suddenly presses the uh, button on his phone to talk to his receptionist and says, get me the speaker who was Tip (laughs) O'Neill. And it turned out Tip O'Neill was not available to take the call, but he spoke to him later and Tip O'Neill said, open the doors to these guys, let them go anywhere. 
So we got to go everywhere and anywhere, and it was fascinating. That's amazing. Yes. Wow. Paramount had to fly us. Paramount had to fly us first class to Washington. It was the last time. Last time I went first class anywhere. <laughs> wow. And Wait, so anyway, we did that script, and they liked it, uh, but they didn't make it. Did um, it get? Do you know how close it ever got? That's a good question. How close did it get, Tara? I have no idea. I don't know. Okay. It didn't get as close as the Jetsons, but I'll I'll save that part of the story for later. Anyway, so we now had this working relationship with uh, Paramount and with a exec there named David Kirkpatrick, who I believe David was on both those projects. Yeah. But anyway, they were looking to do the Jetsons, and somehow they thought of us because we were standing right in front of them at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how we got the Jetsons. Oh, interesting. So, so, so Jetsons, was that going to be a paramount picture then at the time? Oh God, it was not only was it going to be a paramount picture. I will never forget the day <laughs> we had this office. They gave us this office that was so far away from the main lot that if it was any further <laughs> away, we would have been on the sidewalk on Gower Avenue. Was that the one was, down the hall? Was that down the hall from uh, Craig Boone? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Whose, whose name appears in the Jetsons, I noticed yeah, while I reading noticed. the script. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, we were there literally throwing darts at the wall one day, uh, not figuratively, and suddenly there's a knock on the door, and in walks Frank Yablons Jr., who's the chairman of Paramount, who neither of us has ever met, and he's wearing about a $5,000 Xenia <laughs> suit. And he says, hey, guys, mind if I come in? Uh, sure. Have a chair, Frank. We'll, we'll bring, bring, your own, bring your own darts. <laughs> and he said, I just came over here. I just thought I'd drop by and tell you how excited we all are about the Jetsons. Oh, well, that's great, Frank said, in fact, I just had lunch with Stephen and he wants to do the picture. <laughs> we went, oh, that's really great. And he said, <laughs> and this is in like 1984 or five or whatever it was. And he said, so I just want to let you know that we're looking at the Jetsons to be our big Christmas release of 1987. And, you know, we both almost fainted. And then he said, well, keep writing and stick with those darts or whatever he said. And off he went. I don't and then it all went downhill from there. I don't I don't remember this at all. I believe well, it. I remember it. I remember it. And the, the other thing I remember uh, is that it must have been David Kirkpatrick somewhere along the line. We, we did was, this. He was the VP of production at the time. Anyway, I think it was David. It may have been someone else, but we get called into this meeting. Oh, no, before that, you know, we'd done scripts for, for Paramount, for Warners, for Columbia. MGM. When we, well, yeah, MGM. When we turned in the script, they said something I'd never heard in my life before, which was, okay, this is great. We're going to send it over to budgeting. I went, wow, <laughs> this sounds serious. They're going to send it over the budgeting. So they did. And, you know, a couple of weeks went by and we got called back in. They said, well, 
we've got some bad news. Oh, well, what's that? He said, well, the budget came in at 15 million and our top number this year is 9.5. And we just can't go over $9.5 million to make any movie. And we budgeted this at 15. Well, this sounds ridiculous now, but <laughs> yeah, this, this, this was before Jim Carrey and Cable Guy blew the lid off of Hollywood film budgets. And suddenly stars were making $20 million and on and on and on. And it was an entirely different proposition. I remember the numbers being different. I remember saying uh, that they told us it was going to be $20 million and uh, they budgeted 18 Two million bucks. It's could, you know, that sounds, that sounds better. It, these are ridiculous <laughs> numbers in retrospect. So for $2 million, the Jetsons was lost. I have, a, I have a modest story about the Jetsons. I want to be sure to tell. Before I went to USC, I was in a gorilla suit uh, on the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, which was something my dad had been able to steer us to through Kellogg's Corn Flakes commercials. Anyway, Hanna-Barbera. Wait, what, hold on. What does that through? What does that mean through Kellogg? My dad, my dad wrote commercials for Kellogg's for many okay. years through the Leah Burnett Company in Chicago. And when it came time, and the people who animated those carts, uh, those the commercials for those products, Kellogg's was Hanna Barbera. So he got to be friendly with them. They mentioned one day that they were going to go out of the way to make a live action show called the Bananas. Actually, at the time, it was called the Banana Bunch. It became the Banana Splits. But through that, I got to know Hanna Barbera a little bit, and. Uh, for some reason, I don't remember quite why we had a meeting with Gary Nardino, the producer of the Jetsons, and Joe Barbera and us, and probably a secretary or two. And I had the chance to say to Joe, there was some version of the script that looked with a with a 40-foot tall George Jetson, right? Do you remember this? Did you find it in the garage? I'm not, I didn't look yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no big deal. There's a version of it where George explodes in size because of what they've been doing, mucking around with his innards. And and I was likening likening it to something I'd seen as a kid from Forbidden Planet when they shoot at the monster and the monster sort of glows green. Did you guys ever see Forbidden Planet? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was a good movie. Good, yes. and ahead of its time and based on The Tempest, really. The id when it comes out. Anyway. Is the is, is name's it's what's his name's id the monster is, and we I, I was using as a reference point that movie with this in this meeting with Joe Barbera and Gary Nardino and Joe said oh well yeah we did the animation for that monster <laughs> it, it all oh, comes wow. around full circle I, I was amazed. <laughs> And of course, uh, I had a chance to say to Joe, hey, remember me? I was in the gorilla suit, and he was nice enough to say, sure, I remember. I'm sure he didn't, but there you are. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, what, what hurts is that when you said that it was going to come out December 1987, I'm like right now looking at the releases that that year for Christmas, <laughs> and it's it's it kills me because this movie would have destroyed because on uh, December 23rd, the the only release I can see online was Good Morning Vietnam. And the weekend before that, December 18th, was Batteries Not Included. 
uh, Eddie Which Murphy's underperformed. Raw. Yeah, Eddie Murphy's Raw, Ironweed, uh, Meryl Streep, Jack Nicholson, Love Story, Overboard. And I don't know if I call Ironweed a love story, but yeah, uh, it was very depressing. I never, I never saw it. So Uh, Tom Waits is in it. I'll watch any movie. Tom Waits is anyway. So it coming out against those movies, like I can't, I can only see it like destroying at the box office. Not to be offensive. It would have been different. Yes, Uh, it would have been very different than. I mean, because you know Eddie Murphy's Raw has that audience. I mean, I guess it's big. It would have been up against Barry's not included, but you know, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it was. Guy. It made 26 yeah. million according to this, but um, that's not bad for no, not bad $87. Yeah. And uh, batteries not included made 32 actually. Wow. Back then. But I think it would have been like good programming during that, that Christmas. Well, let's talk about your script. Cause we've all read it. Uh, and I liked it uh, quite a bit. I was a big Jetsons fan growing up and i feel that for really you know i guess the idea of uh, and i guess this could actually lead into a question for you guys i was going to say that what i liked about it is that it really felt like just a big jetsons episode but i think you know when you look at when you look at things like the brady bunch movie you know which it also was successful there's different ways you can approach how you adapt something like an old tv show um and obviously you guys chose to do it faithfully but do you remember at all like what those early discussions were like? Were you even talking with Paramount about what they wanted or were they just kind of like go go off and give us what you got? I think it was go off and give us what you got. Yeah, I don't you remember know? any creative input. You know, the, the two things about the movie besides the stupid budgeting story, which really define it. One was, I mean, in, in my mind anyway, one was when we were writing the thing and when it would have been produced, there was no such thing as digital effects. <laughs> and I was forever saying, how are we going to shoot this, Terry? And he'll, <laughs> oh, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. We'll just write it and they'll figure it out. But I could never figure it out in my own mind. And of course, everything in there could easily be done, you know, as of 10 years ago, it could all easily be done. But then the other thing that got me, and I actually made a list when I was rereading the script for this, all the things that we posited in the movie <laughs> that seemed outlandishly ridiculous, there are now common day items that we all have. <laughs> yep. And here's my list. We had a large wafer thin TV screen, like a huge thing you know lg now has that thing that comes out of the thing and and okay that was one and then we had a mirror device where jane jetson models clothes and they change around (laughs) that exists uh here's a really outlandish one judy had an electronic diary that the words appeared on as she said them (laughs) ridiculous you know, uh, and, it, and it even talks back to her like Alexa. Then we had self-driving rocket cars. We had virtual golfing and space ball 3D, which is like <laughs> Oculus. Okay. We had the Apple Watch. We had full motion snapshots in a frame that, you know, walk around. And we even had Apple Pay. So I've always wondered how we were going to do the thing where George gets home, 
he pushes a button and his car folds into a suitcase. <laughs> I still don't know. I don't even now know the digital version of that. I guess anything, anything's possible. It would have been interesting to see how they would have, if they mm -hmm. made the move. I mean, I feel like they could have made the movie. Maybe they probably would have had to scale it back a bit, but. Well, you know, well, they did do Star Wars without digital effects. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I was I was shocked by reading it like you like you were saying, like when I was going through it, I was like, oh, my God, this is VR. This is an iPad. This is like you're you're so right. Like how yeah. many things you guys nailed that was going to come out. I was like I, really blown away by that. I seem to be uh, actually there's another one. Uh, the things that measure George's physical being while he's going through this process. You know, his blood pressure is this and his amount of blood oxygen is this. Well, guess what I have in this thing? I have all of those things that tell me. Indeed, it's it's very handy. I have to, and, and, and an Apple Watch will do all that for you if you want to pop for the Apple Watch. Well, or, or the, the, even the cheaper watch, one. Whatever you call I've, it. I've got the cheaper one right here. It's not an Apple, oh. but it's uh, thirty well, bucks. Well, to rewind back for a second, um, the only information I have leading up to your project was in November 1984. It was like officially announced, and the producer you brought up, Gary. Gary Nardino. Yes. Um, and I believe he he created, I mean, he, he was known for Happy Days and yeah. Taxi. And he, he's a big TV he, guy. He was, he was the president. Yeah, he was an executive. He wasn't even really a producer. He had been the president of Paramount Television during Happy Days and all those huge hits shows. And he decided he didn't want to be the, I don't know if they pushed him out or he wanted to get out of that job. But he went from being the president of television to being a producer with a deal on the lot. Hmm. And, and he for, produced Star Trek three, it looks like. Well, that would have been down the road. This was yeah. the first one, I believe. This was going to be his first project as a oh, producer. Wow. Okay, yeah, because the only thing I could find, like in the variety, it said like 19, November 1984 was when he it was announced that he was joining forces with Anna Barbera to produce uh, the Jetsons. Yeah. And at that time, there was a different writer. It was Eric Luke, who wrote after us. Oh, so he was after you, I guess. I well, you we guys first, came on. We were the first. We were the first writers on. Was the this project. at a different studio? Oh, really? No, it was, a, it was a Paramount. He's well, still Paramount. Gardino's mentioned it had to be at Paramount. Because your script is dated 1986, and this is from 1984. It was first announced, and then and at that time, they announcing announcing it is meaningless. You know? Okay. Do you know if it, do you know if, did Eric Luke actually write a script? He did, but as I said at the beginning of the episode, we and he don't have that script anymore, so uh, yeah. it's hard for well, us to say. We, as the guys who were hired after him, we were never told his script existed, much less saw it. I don't know. I, I, I have we no idea first. what he might have done. I think we were the first. Okay. I remember you ran into a guy on the lot, David Kirkpatrick. Uh, no, no. He asked you how we liked his uh, the punch up of the script. And you said you thought that he had punched it out. <laughs> and uh, it was it was mentioned that Chevy Chase and Goldie Horn were up for the film. That's, Is that yes? That's, that's what they told us. Picture them. Yeah, it was perfect. Oh, and of course, and of course, Danny DeVito is Mr. Spacely. I mean, oh, has to be. <laughs> yeah, when you read it back, you go perfect. Yeah. Oh, oh my God! Yeah, totally. 
Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the script itself. Um, Actually, even before that, and granted, I know this was a long time ago, but do you guys remember any of your kind of even just sort of blue skying brainstorming process of were you going back and watching episodes of the show? Like, how were you kind of good question? Did we watch any episodes, Alec? (laughs) I don't recall watching any episodes because I always thought they were really stupid when they first came out. <laughs> so I was not like a big fan or anything. I, I was a little, I think we were a little age inappropriate for it. I think it was aimed at, you know, 12 year olds when we were 20 something yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you do so have no. a lot of details from the show though. Like where were yeah. you, uh, because even just like minor characters like Knuckles Nuclear, you know, I think it's from like one episode of the show and uh, Judy Jetson being obsessed with Jet Screamer, the rock star. You have like the, the poster on yeah. the wall and that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe somebody gave us a Bible or something. Yeah, I really don't remember. I really don't remember when I went back and read the script as I went. Oh, wow. This was always one of my favorite things was making Astro the dog, the narrator. I thought, I thought as I read it, I went, that was fucking brilliant. And it was. <laughs> was I was going to say, that's the, no one will ever know. That's the opening yeah. of the script is we're seeing uh, Astro as a puppy flying through space and narrating. Uh, got the kind of jokes I love where we, he's like listening to Earth radio as he's approaching. And we reveal yeah, that the Earth is K Earth 101, uh, which for people who don't know is the LA radio station. Maybe it has national coverage. I don't know. I think of it as being. LA. That, uh, LA. That introduction of Astro was one thing that Joe Barbera went out of his way to say he didn't like because <laughs> it, it violated the true history of Astro. True whatever, history. The, whatever the hell the true history was, it was something that they did in house and we were violating it. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. He's flying through space and almost Superman style, his pod lands. Uh, where George and Jane have been like on their honeymoon at sort of the implication they've just been married. Honeymoon, they're stooping in the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 80s. You could do those kind of jokes in family movies. Um, but yeah, I mean, do, what, why don't you explain for our listeners um, just kind of what the, the main story of the movie is? I think it would have been a lot of fun. I like the, the choices you guys made for all the subplots. You know, well, it was trying to be about heart. I think at the end of the day, it's about heart and about how if you, if you, you know, if you control the mind of someone and make it perfect and get rid of all the imperfections, uh, you don't wind up with perfection. You wish you had what you started out with. It's also also very much about family. And I was sort yeah. of impressed for a couple of guys who were miles away from getting families going. <laughs> we were, you know, I was 15 years out. Alec was uh, less than that out of getting families yet. Uh, we had surprising insights. I was really impressed reading it. I was part. too. I <laughs> thought, how did I know all this stuff before I had kids? <laughs> Somebody did a good job on us. And kind of that the A plot, I would say, is that, uh, which felt very true to the show, is that George really wants a promotion. There's even a scenery. He's got like the two different lists. One of what his life will look like life will look like if he doesn't get the promotion and the other, what it'll be if he does, which is Elroy gets to go to space ball camp, you know, second honeymoon, all these kind of fun things. Uh, and then, so there's this bit of farce because another part of the setup is 
that we're at space lease brackets and we see they're doing some kind of experiment on a chimpanzee who is writing a Shakespeare. He's basically right, literally writing Shakespeare. Um, Knuckles nuclear breaks in uh, and steals. He's supposed to steal two like prototype things, but he only gets one and we don't quite know what's going on, but it's revealed that he's working for Cogswell for, I guess those who don't never watch the Jetsons. Um, I guess even stepping back further, for those who truly don't know the Jetsons, the Flintstones was supposed to be the honeymooners. And they're like, well, let's do, if the Flintstones is dinosaur times, we'll do a show that's set in the distant future. And for that, they used as a model, the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, And I guess if you don't know the Dick Van Dyke show, none of these examples mean anything. Uh, (laughs) But idea that uh, George worked for Spacely Sprockets, which was just, you know, a company and Spacely's nemesis was Cogswell Cogs. Um, and so Knuckles is working for Cogswell. They're up to something no good. Uh, and the big sort of farcical setup is that there's another person at Spacely Sprockets named Mr. Ferrari. A scene I actually thought would have been great if they could have figured out the special effects is George arriving at Spacely Sprockets and turns his car into a briefcase, which again, for those who know, if you don't know the show, just watch the intro theme song. It's a fun theme song and it basically shows you everything <laughs> in it you would ever need to know about the show. Including that might have been all we looked at. Maybe, yeah. I mean, all, yeah. Uh, and George's car turns into a briefcase. And I like that Ferrari, who's driving a future Ferrari, as a sign that he's both better looking and cooler uh, then George, his turns into a Gucci wallet rather than a big clunky <laughs> briefcase. But it is revealed that uh, Spacely wants to move ahead from the chimp testing to human testing of whatever this mysterious thing is. We don't know what it is. And that it's going to be done on Mr. Ferrari because he's young and handsome and in really good shape. Uh, and in classic, I would say Dick Van Dyke show fashion, um, George walks into the office when Spacely is expecting this guy to come in who they're going to do the experiment on. And typical, George is coming typical, in. Typical TV uh, yeah. you know, mistaken identity. And he's Go like, he, George is coming in to be like, I'm, you know, he's been working up his speech of how I want to get this big promotion. And then uh, again, perfect far Spacely thinks that he's the guy they're doing the test on. And he's like, come with me. You're the guy. And George thinks like, oh, I got the promotion. Wow. I barely even had enough to give my big speech or anything. And he takes him off to um, Las Venus, which is Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I feel I'm not really doing it justice because as you said, it oh, is, yeah, it is cliche. doing a, a great job. It's cliche <laughs> sitcom stuff. But again, that's that's what the Jets, the Jetsons was like a parody of these mm-hmm. type of sitcoms, even to be, even for kids. I don't kids were maybe more sophisticated back then. I don't know if they were even appreciating that that's what the show was supposed to be, but um, George gets implanted. That's the, uh, wrote it down. I'm forgetting what it's called off the top of my head. Um, it's a, a human potentializer is this new product that Spacely Sprockets is working on, which they implant in your brain. That's supposed to allow you to use like a hundred percent of your brain. And this all gets done to George under, he thinks he's getting this promotion and it all happens too fast. And so kind of really the bulk of the movie then is after that, once it's too late, they only had that one prototype. They're not going to take it out of George to go find Mr. Ferrari to put it in. So it's like, he's training to get better. 
uh, Spacely or Cogswell is trying to get it back because they need like both prototypes to work. And there's kind of this ongoing funny thing where it's revealed that really Cogswell's plan is he wanted to put it in the brain of his brother-in-law, who's a senator, because there's a device you can use that allows you to control that person. Uh, <laughs> if you don't, if you guys remember this, no, no, I, 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 oh, I, I oh, there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Knuckles keeps showing up because they found out that it was supposed to be implanted in Mister Ferrari. So they keep showing up to try to get it to work on Mister Ferrari, and nothing's happening. But then we'll cut to George in his office, who's like accidentally punching himself in the face and all these things. Um, and also, there's all these. I mean, again, great B C D plots with Jane is entering mm-hmm. the workforce. Uh, Judy has a whole thing where she. Uh, you know, because she's a uh, boy crazy for Jet Screamer, who's a big rock star, and she gets assigned to a new foreign exchange student who's an alien who basically looks exactly like Jet Screamer. Uh, and they have a whole thing. Elroy's trying to get into space ball camp. Um, and it's but all at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there's no place like home. No. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I think it works well for a the Jetsons were all the jokes were about in the same way that the Flintstones was all like they would, Oh, their vacuum is a dinosaur and they get a close up on the dinosaur's face. And it's like, it's a living. That was like every Flintstones joke. <laughs> I know the Jetsons, the reverse of that was all their futuristic gizmo jokes. Um, and ultimately as you were saying, it's about family. And then kind of, I think there was also a message of not anti-technology, but the idea of let like, you know, because again, stuff you would see in the intro of the Jetsons was the fact that George doesn't even dress himself and doesn't even his exercise is that a machine would like grab all his limbs and just like move them around quickly. Uh, so kind of it ends on the idea of like, you know, that uh, you shouldn't just surrender yourself to technology. So that was yeah. even a problem in the mid 80s, clearly. Uh, and continues to be. I made a movie. Uh, I made a whole bunch of movies for Roger Corman after Alec and I stopped working together and are again working together. Uh, and in one of them, it's the same set of principles. They have improved people's abilities by implanting a chip in their heads. And that magnifies it. In that story, it made the slum looking city look beautiful. And then if they can do that, they can go one step further and manipulate people and so on. And we did that in 2007. So <laughs> I seem to be oh, wow. hung up on this idea for forever. <laughs> well, here's a question I have. First of all, have you guys actually read any of these other Jetson scripts? No, we no. couldn't. The, the Eric Mm-mm. Luke one, we didn't have. And again, he couldn't, he really couldn't remember. I don't think he has a copy, so... He was yeah. trying to remember a script he probably wrote quickly and never reread again in the mid eighties. So. Yeah, he said he wrote it on some device that like had floppy disk or something, or not even or hard. <laughs> he just All computers yeah. were floppy disk driven back then. Yeah, so he could never get a copy of it. Unfortunately, was it I, I don't no remember. Idea. <laughs> I don't even know if he remembers. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I have to say, I was, I was really. Uh, surprisingly pleased by that script when i read it you know uh, recently uh, for this podcast i uh, i was too it's a very it's a great read it's a fun it's a fun script it's because i 
when you have to read a script for the show, sometimes you're like, oh man, what's this going to be like? But this one was, it was. That's very like, breezy too. I mean, yeah, yeah. As a writer, I like to say that if you can understand an IP, you don't necessarily need to be a fan of it to execute on it. So it's interesting to hear you say that uh, you felt you were too old for the Jetsons when it came out and weren't really fans because it, it, it it feels like it was written by people who are fans. Like I, mm-hmm. it's not like looking down on the show. Um, no, we wanted to deliver on, on what the show was. We wanted to smarten it up because it was actually pretty stupid. I never understood the, take those. Go ahead. I never understood the joke of Knuckles Nuclear. Why, why is that the funny name? We don't even <laughs> see it written down anywhere. It's only in reading the script. I think in the original show, he was like a, and then maybe it was a criminal. I was going to say he was maybe a boxer, a boxing criminal. I don't remember. I haven't seen that, that show that, that in a very sense. long time. By the uh, way, I looked up Eric Luke, uh, Alec. He wrote the Explorers. Makes perfect sense, right? You remember which Explorers? Which one was that? That we was that other Ed- Joe Dante movie. Yeah. Uh, Kirkpatrick invited us to it. And the theater in uh, at Wilshire and God, I forget, somewhere in Westwood. And we walked out because it was horrible. And <laughs> oh we ran into the makers of the movie on the street because they didn't need to see it again. They were only there for the Q&A or whatever. Are you sure I was with you? I have no memory of this. Well, I will say if you were a little kid and you'd seen it, you it would have a, liked it. It was a Kirkpatrick yeah. invite. <laughs> that's why that's why i think that i wasn't invited alone yeah but as a kid it's a fun movie totally but yeah i could see why an adult it fits into that goonies yeah. monster squad kind of yeah. spielberg <laughs> uh uh ancillary uh type films the amblin era um i was gonna say this has nothing to do with what we were just saying but i saw my note and i wanted to say before i forget uh that i just thought was interesting as far as really putting placing this movie in time from when you wrote it. So the script we had was dated 1986. And uh, as I noted, like once George gets this implant and he's becoming fully potentialized and he makes a deal with Spacely to get this raise and promotion. So now he's got all this money and he can pay for his family stuff. Elroy gets to go to space ball camp. And I like that it was named Pete Rose Spaceball Camp. Yeah, this was, a, few, right this was a couple years before his big scandal where <laughs> he was barred yep. from baseball for life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wondered about that too. I'm surprised it's got a date of 86. I thought we were long finished with it by then. I like... Yeah, this is uh, uh, March 18th, 86. Other life events. Yeah. Uh, what? I do know. I do know that in 86, Terry, we were working on a, another TV kind of idea. Oh, yeah. Uh, that project at New World. It's Steve Tisch one. And Steve, uh, Tisch, it's Steve Tisch yet again. And and what's the director's the name? The other Steve. Steve. The director. Can't, yeah, I can't remember his name. I ran into him in Bulgaria and he pretended not to know me. <laughs> what was the premise of that show? Well, that oh, that yeah. was actually something that came out later as Pleasantville, not actually a, a, a direct thing from our script, but we were handed the premise because New World had the rights to the life of Riley, and they wanted to do a movie around the life of Riley. 
And I don't remember if it was our idea or their idea that the characters on the TV show hopped out of the TV and were suddenly in the present, except they were black and white and everyone else was in color. And I never actually saw Pleasantville, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of the premise. I don't think it was a, a steal. I think it was just a coincidence. Right. Yeah, I think in Pleasantville, so, they get sucked into the TV. Yeah, into the black and white. Okay. Yeah, so this was and the then reverse they turn it of that. into color. Yeah, it sounds like reverse. This was the reverse of that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of wild too because you're talking about this thing with George Jetson, and it's like it totally feels like that Bradley Cooper movie that eventually came out called Limitless. Also, yeah, so with the yes. pill, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's <laughs> except that was a, that was a TV wasn't show. Taking it seriously. With the I like that. I like that movie. Actually, no wonder. I think it's the best <laughs> thing Bradley Cooper ever did. Although I haven't seen the new one, but he was great in that. Yeah, it's, so it's such a trip. And then what's wild too is that you guys also kept like the moving walkways. Like, yeah, reading the script, I was like, wow, this would have been, yeah, this would have been a little pricey because I mean, it does is so many gags and it's so much fun, you know. You know, why didn't they circle back to us and say, can you write this down a little bit, guys, to get it made? Yeah, we could write it down. It doesn't have to, the car doesn't have to fit in it was briefcase. Well, well, of course, as a neurotic writer, at the time I took it as, well, that's just an excuse for they didn't like the script. But when I go back and read the script as a much more mature person than I was when we wrote it, I go, well, if that was their reason, they're just stupid. Because it was so good. <laughs> I mean, I think this is exactly what, especially for the 80s, I feel like this is exactly what a Jetsons movie should be. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I was a kid, and again, this was the era where I liked the show. I mean, the fun thing about cartoons is a cartoon from the 60s, but I didn't know that it was 20 years old when I was watching it in the 80s. So uh, I, I was the exact exact right audience age for this if it had come mm-hmm. out christmas 87 oh absolutely uh, and i think they re they did new episodes around this time too because i think that's when orbity came into the into the scene was when they kind of revisited in the 80s and they uh had a bunch of new episodes so it was totally geared towards us and yeah i think it, was, it had a research i mean it must have been what part yeah. of why they were thinking of making it as a movie i think it had a resurgence in popularity for a new generation um, Because looking at what they ended up doing with the Flintstones movie, which is whatever, acceptable, perfectly fine movie. I know that has its fans. Um, if that got made, you know, it's the kind of like, why wouldn't this get made? But as we all know, there's a million, there's more reasons to not make a movie than there who is was, to make one. Unfortunately. Who was Wilma in that? John Goodman was Fred, right? Yeah. Wilma was, was um, Eliz- wait, I'm forgetting her yeah. name. She Elizabeth was on Weeds. Per- yes. Elizabeth Perkins? Yeah, yeah, from Big. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, Rick Moranis was Barney. Oh yeah, that's right. Stephen Baldwin was Barney in the sequel. I'm sorry, Rick Moranis was Barney, and uh, Rosie O'Donnell was Betty. Oh yeah, I can see it. Was there any directors attached to this version of the Jetsons besides like the two actors? We don't know. All we ever heard was that he had lunch with Stephen. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) The only reference we ever heard to a director was that one. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure everyone was having these lunches with Steven at the time and getting excited sure. that 
he feigned whatever minimal level of interest in the, their projects. Stephen, will you go look up and see how uh, Explorers did? <laughs> yeah. Please. Well, explore. I'm trying to figure out if I want to ask you to go get rid of that comment about it. And Joe was a oh, good no. guy. <laughs> oh no, it did. It did very poorly. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. It didn't. It, didn't it was a troubled s- production. They uh, they oh, were yeah. rewriting it while they were shooting it. Uh, I think yeah, that's okay. a classic example of a mm-hmm. movie where everyone who made it viewed it as a failure and then learned 20 years later, there was an entire generation of kids who were obsessed with it. And they're like, Oh, that's, that's nice. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause right. we, we, we grew up with it. So it was totally different. And then when you see that new, the, I actually like it. The, the Josh Trank fantastic four, it totally feels like explorers, but yeah, but us that grew up with it has a, you know, we liked it, but we could totally understand that like adults at the time would be like, what is this? You yeah, know? yeah. It, it's a great concept of kids who fe- learn, get some like a message from space that teaches them how to mm-hmm. uh, essentially build a spaceship and go out yeah. into space. Like yeah. what's not the love with your well, eight years but, old watching this, but yeah. Right. Budget was 20 to 25 million. And it looks like it grossed oh, 9.9 million. Oof. I, uh, I say this because Joe was a good guy. Uh, he was fun to work with on the howling. He wanted to name all the characters, and we did name all of the characters after guys who directed werewolf movies. <laughs> I don't know. We love Joe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I, yeah. I even think he's like, you know, upset of what, what happened to the movie. You yeah. Know? You mean Explorers? Yeah, yeah. I don't think they got yeah. to quite make the movie they wanted to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like rushed or something. It was like a whole thing with it. Um. Well, yeah, so we've already kind of explored uh, what ended up not happening with it. Uh, I mean, so then I don't want to use the word fallout, but it was like, what kind of what was your guy's career? I like here. I like knowing that you guys split up and have kind of come back together as someone who has a writing partner. I always kind of get bummed out when writing partners split up. I know it happens. I'm trying Um, to well, we split up because I got a gig as a director. That was the most specific reason. Uh, it, it was really nothing. It was nothing interpersonal. Was that the I mean, nest or was there something before that? Yes. No, it was the nest. That was in 87. But I'm pretty sure there was a script after that. Yeah. The, the Steve Tisch uh, come out of the TV or go into the TV, one or the other. What was that called, Alec? It's called Out of the Box. Of course. Yeah. It was called Out of the Box before Out of the Box was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> no one said, oh, that's really Out of the Box. Yeah, I think we coined it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it was perfectly we were literally out of a box. Yeah, <laughs> it was perfectly doable. I don't know why it didn't happen. Steve, what's his name? God damn it! <laughs> I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> uh, who do, who directed Soul Man? Steve. Oh, or Steve Miner. Steve Miner. Steve right. Miner. Steve Miner was the director. He kind of liked it. As I say, I ran into him in Bulgaria where my wife is from and uh while i was there they needed as many english speaking semi actors as they could find <laughs> that's me because i'm not really a very good actor but i can speak english okay <laughs> <laughs> what are your qualities as an actor well i can speak english yeah. you're hired my english is pretty and, good and that was pretty and much to, about to, yeah. went off to, to do those movies with roger and others right. and we had actually previously gone our separate ways in the end of the 70s and I had gone and done this writing project at Warner Brothers oh, yeah. uh, 
with John Taplin. And that ultimately went nowhere. But then by a fluky bunch of things, I got roped into the first uh, IMAX film I had anything to do with. That was in 1980. And I thought that was a one-off. And it was. And then we, Terry and I got back together. We did Washing Pages. We did The Jetsons. We did Out of the Box. And then he went and did more of those movies again. And I got pulled back into the IMAX world where I, you know, had a totally different career for 15, 20 years, whatever it was. That was uh, that one. The first one you did, the Hawaii one, was where I came down to Laguna and we wrote a love scene or two, right? I said, what do you need in this? He said, love scene. Oh, we did. Yeah. As I recall, we did. And while you were down there doing that stuff, I was off doing the howling. I don't know how long that took, but, you know, I did that. And I wrote something on spec that I got more money <laughs> when they bought it on spec than I ever got doing anything else. Oh, well. What was that? Called Sequence, about a, uh, uh, about a guy, a guy you couldn't do that now for a million years, uh, in a million years. That is to say, a playwright who's interested only in who has seen his play called Oh My Gosh, and who <laughs> is fooling around with his ex-wife, which is, it's the character basically from To Be or Not To Be. Jack Benny cares only about who's seen him in To Be or Not To Be, and somebody's fooling around with Carol Lombard, his wife. There was a strong influence on when I sat down and wrote that. I wrote it in three weeks and retyped it again in about a week and then sold it uh, quite quickly thereafter. It was tight. It worked well. You know, when you write something in three weeks, it better bloody be tight. You can't. <laughs> I, 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 it was tight. Nice. On that one, I was fast. They don't always go that fast. Well, and Alec. Amen. I was going to say, uh, I'm now realizing, so you've been nominated for an Oscar twice. So you are, you, you beat our, our previous only Oscar uh, nominee was Josh Olson, who wrote a history of violence. So you beat him. Now we've got to get a three time. <laughs> They're going <laughs> to champion you. Um, well, guys, uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I, Good. I love these stories. I, I, I just, I love that that era too of the usc stories i just, oh yeah i can't really get enough of like filling in further gaps on it for whatever reason um i mean how do you guys maybe uh, interesting way to cap things out when you kind of look back at the very beginnings for you guys and i can't mm. tell if this is again just a thing of my generation who grew up with you guys as kind of you know the pr the previous generation uh, and filling us with your stories of your own like glory college years. But it kind of just felt like that was the era where like film school was like really cool. Uh, do you guys still feel that way looking back or is that just kind of. I, I still you know, feel that very, way. It was very small at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it part of no, it. It had no national notoriety yet. Uh, there were three schools. There was NYU, UCLA. USC, that's all there was. If you didn't go to one of those schools, you probably didn't know about the other two. I only stumbled into it because I was looking for a girl I was dating at UCSB one night and her roommate said, oh, she's over on campus watching these student films. I said, student films, what's that? <laughs> but I wanted to find her. 
So I went over to watch these films, which turned out to be the UCLA student films of the previous year. I never found the girl, but I went, wow, you, you can go to college and make movies. Now I know what I want to major in. And, you know, it, it didn't seem, it didn't seem so star studded as it does now in retrospect. I mean, Lucas had just walked out the door when we walked in and everybody knew he was going to be a star somehow, some way, but it hadn't really happened for anybody yet. And I think, I mean, I think you hit it. I think that's it exactly is that by the time I was going to film school, uh, we, everyone knew of that you could have this in theory film school Mm -hmm. track, even though no such thing exists. And there's film schools everywhere, every college had however Mm -hmm. minor and bogus it was everyone had some kind of film thing it just felt a little more punk rock i guess when all you guys were doing it i went i went to school in southern illinois before i went to southern california and uh for about a year and two-thirds and uh there was one class i did take and it was making films for newsreels the (laughs) assignment was to make a 30 second newsreel type clip they would show on the news. I turned in a minute and a half, uh, no, a minute and 10 second epic about, you know, some guy who lives in the woods so he can get a car to drive on, a permit for driving on campus. That guy loved the film and he said, (laughs) well, what the fuck is this? (laughs) You know, a minute and 10 seconds and stuff, so. Oh man, my, I unfortunately, my grades weren't good enough to get into USC or UCLA. And this, the college I got into wasn't very good. We had two po- two movie posters up in the mm. library. One was Fist Fighter and the other one was Surf Nazis Must Die. So I went to the Surf Nazis Must Die film school. <laughs> <laughs> and then I dropped out and spent my money, the rest of my money on my first documentary. When I went in to apply for USC, uh, there was a guy named Dave Johnson. Didn't blink at all when he asked me, so how come you want to do this or whatever? I just, what can I say? It seems like fun. And uh, he didn't blink. These days, you need a letter from your senator and a long list of, you know, credentials. You need a body of work. So, Nobody uh, had a body of work. I think Carpenter <laughs> had a body of work. <laughs> right. Oh, man. But that, that's so cool. You guys went to school with Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon. And when I was on the campus of USC, the first guy from the film school I ever met was John Carpenter in Alumni wow. Park. Because we had seen each other at the first meeting that morning or something. And who knew? Man, I would love to see a movie about that or a TV show about that. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like. You would, huh? We have the beginnings of one, don't we? Yeah, Yeah, we started working on that, actually. Wait, really? Please finish it. I want to see it. It's in my hard drive. Yeah, I bet there are a bunch of people who would like to see it. Yeah, I can't remember. Apologies to bore any longtime listeners if I've told this story (laughs) before, but um, I did a summer program in the middle of college, I think it was technically a UCLA program because that's whose campus we stayed in the dorms. It was like, I'm from Minnesota, but you know, you flew out to LA to do it for a week and they took you around town. Like we got to sit in the audience while they were shooting a bunch of sitcoms that all then got canceled immediately upon premiering, (laughs) I remember. Uh, But one of the coolest things we did is they took us to USC Gave us some kind of spiels, whatever. But then they showed us uh, a bunch of USC student films. Of course, they showed us George Lucas's original THX. 
I remember they showed us this crazy movie Robert Zemeckis made that like, it's just funny because it was an era where clerks had just come out uh, in the nineties, you know, which he spent like $30,000 on. And I think they told us that Zemeckis's whole student film cost like $30,000, which blew my mind, but it looked super expensive. Like it had like bus stunts in it. And I'm forgetting the director's name now. I feel dumb. But he made the movie Fandango and he reused his own student film that had the skydiving scene in it in the movie Fandango. Is that the guy who works with uh, Kevin Kevin Reynolds? Yes, Kevin Reynolds. And they had a falling out over Waterworld. But again, it was just this idea of like, is this what student films are like? (laughs) Like this has a skydiving sequence. And the crazy thing now looking back was uh, they didn't tell us this at the time. I guess they wanted to show some oldies, but goodies. And then they wanted to show us one of their newest ones, which was Ryan Johnson uh, made a short called evil demon golf ball. And so it was weird to me then years later when Ryan Johnson became, you know, this huge director, I was like, wait, I feel like I watched his like weird horror comedy student film. He made about an evil golf ball that was going around killing people. Uh, but I guess that must have been like the year he graduated or something, because I don't think he's that much older than me. But again, you guys should finish finish that project. I think Please. that'd be fun. I'm going to go see what it's called. Hold on a sec. <laughs> we had a good title, as I recall. I'm looking at the, I think it's on my hard, uh, it's on my desktop. Well, there's too many things here. <laughs> when we uh, when we find it, we'll let you know. Yeah, we can tweet about it. Um Absolutely. But, uh, please finish it. I'm, I'm a sucker for mm-hmm. industry movies. Um, but I guess that's a great place to end it. Thanks to Terrence, Alec. Uh, you guys were great. Um, are you guys on the social media in any way that you would like people to follow you? No. <laughs> no I, I don't care if I'm followed. It okay. doesn't do me. But, but feel free. I don't mind. Okay. Two <laughs> S's. Terrence Winkless. Uh, is that Twitter? Yes, that's Twitter. Okay, uh, cool. But but uh, we care. So if you would like to follow us on Twitter, we are at Never Made Film or on Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. Uh, if you're interested in watching video of any of our podcasts, you should download the uh, Electric Now app, which is a free app. You can watch movies and TV shows and more importantly, our podcast video of our podcasts and all the podcasts on the electric surge network, including the 430 movie and inglorious Trexperts. We'd like to thank everyone at our network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin until next time. This is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.